Well, it's a privilege again uh, to be here this morning. Uh, if you take a copy of God's Word and join me in Acts 2, we're in Acts 2, 42 to 47 this morning. I've entitled our time together, A Devoted Church. So in our series, this is another installment in our series, we've covered so far uh, the, the necessity of being a rugged church, a loving church, a salty and well-lit church, and this is our next installment in the marks of a healthy church. We are to be a devoted church. We are to be a devoted church. I want to begin by being up front and telling you that I absolutely love the local church. I love the universal church, but particularly I love the local church, and there are a bazillion reasons uh, for that love. The most important and the most significant among the many reasons is that Jesus loved the church. And because Jesus loved the church, we should love the church. Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 is uniquely present in the church. When we gather together, if you would read about the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, you'll see that he walks among the church. So he's uniquely present. Uh, you can't replicate what we do on a Sunday morning in any other context. I don't know if you've ever had somebody hand you a, uh, a message or send you a link to a sermon and said, man, this one was amazing. It changed my life. And you listen it on the way to work and you're like, ah, that wasn't that great. You know, because you can't replicate the uniqueness of the moment. You don't have the worship that Ross and Kendon and the others are producing for you and getting your heart ready. You don't have the inspiration under the scripture. And all of that comes together in a unique moment in the sermon experience even. And what makes it special. But Jesus uniquely walks among his church. Jesus also said he'd build the church, right? He, he's building the church. We don't build the church. He builds the church. And he says, as a matter of fact, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. So no matter what happens in the cultural world, the church continues onward. Jesus died for the church. Ephesians 4, verse 25. He gave up his life for the church. That's why I love the local church. Paul adds in later in 1 Timothy 3, 15, he says that the church, the local church, is the custodian of the gospel. Uh, that's why we plant healthy churches all over the world, because it's the evangelism strategy. You're here uniquely in, in this particular valley, uh, or in Grants Pass, or Medford. Why? To, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we covered that last time together. So, I love the local church. I hope you love the local church, but I think we need to evaluate our love for the local church this morning, and that's why I've, I've entitled our time together, A Devoted Church. What does it mean to be all in? What does it mean when I say I love the local church? What does that look like every single day of our lives? And so when I say I love the local church, it's primarily because I love Jesus. He loved the local church, and if you love Jesus, you're going to love the local church. A follower of Jesus has the expectation on you that you would be an active participant in the local church, right? You're not called to go it alone. I'm not called to go it alone. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 18.1 says, he who isolates himself 
rages against all sound judgment. You can go back to Genesis. It's not good for man to be alone. You're never to grow in grace alone. You're to be in a community. That community in the context of scripture is the local church. And so this is why we love the local church. We live in community and that's how progressive sanctification works. You can't go without the local church. You would retard your progressive sanctification if you're not engaged and actively engaged in the local church. It's where you express your spiritual gifts. Your spiritual giftedness is not for you, it's actually for others. And then there's the 32 one another's mentioned in the New Testament. There, there's a plethora of one another's that you're to exercise and demonstrate in the context of the local church. So I'm a huge fan of membership. I believe membership to a local church is biblical. And it's biblical for a number of reasons. I'll just pass through these real quick. But it's clear in the New Testament, one of the descriptions of the local church is a body. And the members know one another and the members understand that body kind of language. And then there's a list in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It talks about the widows. There's younger and older widows. And they would be put on a list. So there was some record of who was on the list and who was not on the list. There was a, there was a keeping of the list. Then there's elders. And elders are to lead. And members are to submit themselves up under the elders. Hebrews 13, right? 7 and 13. You see there's a submission of that. And then there's church discipline. Well, how do you know to put somebody out of the church if there's no list in the church, right? There's just some obvious things. So even though there's not a verse that says, thou shalt be a member, there's no 11th commandment, thou shalt be a member of the local church, I think it's implied. And a matter of fact, I think it's strongly implied. And I think it's extremely valuable. So the local church is not a club, this isn't Costco membership, and I know some of you have an executive membership at Costco, and praise the Lord for you. I'm really proud of you. I actually have that on my Twitter feed, that I'm an executive member of Costco. Of course, with the other 2.9 million people that have that same privilege. Um, but I think it's, it's not optional. It, it's, it's not a luxury. I don't even believe it's elective. I think if you're a child of God claiming to be on fire for the Lord, red hot believer in Jesus Christ, you will be a member of a local church. And so private worship is not sufficient for you. You have to have corporate worship. And that's in the context of the local church. And private worship can't replace it. You, you probably felt that during the pandemic, right? We were all kind of watching church from a distance and there's something that happens uniquely and even in the presence here, even seeing you and I see Ross and I see him here every Sunday or Kendon standing here. If they can be there and they can trust the Lord and they can walk in faith, guess what? It encourages me. I can do this. I, I, I can do it. So that even this, the, 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 the natural, just the visual presence of one another makes me think if you can do it, if Bob can be faithful, I can be faithful right? You know, if Bill can play at the ivories and tickle the ivories, I can, I can't play the piano, but I can do, I can do certain, you know, it encourages me to see you here, right? I love the local church. 
And I hope, it, I hope this morning to give you another installment on why you should love the local church, why you should be all in the local church, why you should commit yourself and your family and raising up your children in the context of the local church. It's Sunday night, April 5th, 1891. Charles Haddon Spurgeon ascends to the pulpit and he challenged his church that evening. He said, give yourselves to the church. Mr. Spurgeon says, the church is not perfect. However, if you could find a perfect church and then you joined it as a sinful man or woman, it would become imperfect. Still imperfect, it is the dearest place on earth. Isn't that true? It is the dearest place on the earth. What a profound clause right? The church is not a hotel for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And when you see one another here and you battled all week, you battled against the devil himself, you know, you're like, okay, I can do this. I should commit my life to this. So listen, there are no perfect churches on this planet. However, among the imperfect, there are healthy ones. And that's the way it's designed. The glory always goes to God. You don't want to look at me and say, oh, he's a perfect guy, therefore I follow him. That's how cults are started, right? And you moved to Waco, Texas. Not to see Chip and Joanne, but to join a cult, right? We don't do that. And so I want to strongly, as I can, put all my weight behind this text and encourage you to engage in the local church with all of her blemishes and imperfections. So among the imperfect, there are healthy ones. This would be among those. And I want you to love the church. Because you love Jesus, you should love the local church. The local church is the hope of the gospel. That's why I'm serious about church planting. That's why I run church planting organizations. Why? Because that's how evangelism works. There's no plan B. That's how it works. You plant churches, and churches reach people, right? But I think it's okay to stop this morning and pause and say, what is a biblical church? What are the activities of a a local church? How do I know what church to join? How do I know a healthy church? How do I recognize her? You know, when you're going to visit another community uh, on vacation, you say, I want to find a church. What are you kind of looking for, right? Well, the passage before you in Acts 2, 42 to 47, is a blueprint. And I'll explain some interpretive challenges as we approach this particular passage. But it's an early blueprint. When I say early, it's 50 days after the resurrection. That's significant. So 50 days after the resurrection, shazam, you have this text. That's important. It's close proximity. It's the earliest of the early church. And it's just significant significant as we think about what to look for in a church and what what are the activities of a healthy church. Let's read the passage, shall we? Written by Luke, doctor. He's a physician. Dr. Luke wrote this. He's a more sophisticated writer, writing the book of Acts and writing the gospel of Luke. If you've traversed the terrain of Luke's gospel, you know he's he's an educated man. 50 days after the resurrection, he writes this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, didache, 
and the fellowship, koinonia, to breaking of bread and a serious prayer. And the result all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through these 12 apostles. And all who believed were together. As a matter of fact, they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. Because people had needs. If anybody had a need, they would meet it. Verse 46. How often did they do this? Once a week? No. Day by day. This is real church, right? Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread even in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God, having favor with all the people. The result, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's awesome. This is the reading of God's word. Now, you know our pattern. We're a Bible church. We need to jump in and give you a little bit of context because as I'm doing, I'm bouncing all over the scriptures and I apologize. I'd love to just work through a whole book with you, but that's not the way our time is. So we're going to bounce around and we find ourselves in Acts 2. So let's talk first about the interpretation and how you interpret the book of Acts because it's particular. It is written by Dr. Luke. It is narrative. But what you have to know about the book of Acts is that it's historical narrative, all right? So that means you do not want to create theological principles and doctrines out of the book of Acts. You're reading it. You're looking back at the first century church and their activity. So it's not how to do it. It's what they did. It's what they did as a local church. It doesn't mean you can replicate. So everything in here, some of it's not repeatable, right? Some of it's not part of the ecclesia that we are here in 2023. It's, it's not for us, right? And so it's a description of really the, the book of Acts covers three decades. The sermon we're going to look at or the, the text we're looking at is just 50 days, but it spans actually three decades, 30 years of church history. And so it's historical narrative. It's extremely important. So in theology, we say it like this. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. So if someone comes to you and brings you doctrine, not affirming doctrine, but brings you the actual theological principle out of here, then you kind of got to go, hmm. You kind of, it doesn't pass the sniff test, you know, theologically. So it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Although there's good things in here, we're going to see it. And we're going to see how they did church. And we're going to say, how does, that, um, how does that work here? How does that work in our local church, right? <clears throat> so how you order the church, there's actually a lot of latitude. There's some things that are anchored and true and unbendable and timeless and not geographical and work around the world. But there's other things that, hey, you can order it, how many songs we do, uh, uh, how the flow of the service, whether we take up an offering with a, you know, with a plate or a box. or what, There's thousands of ways we can choose as a local church and as leaders in a local church to order the church. 
But it doesn't discount, what I just said doesn't discount the value of discovering what the first church did. It's a privilege this morning to go back. You can almost taste, not the smoke, but you can taste the dusty streets of Palestine as they gathered on the Lord's Day, which would have been a Sunday, 1 Corinthians 15 says. They gathered on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And they gathered, and this is what it looked like. And so I think by eavesdropping on their church, it's a possibility we can learn some things. But more importantly, I want to infuse you with a deep, all-in, abiding love for the local church. Because I think it's biblical, and I think it's in this text, and I want it to serve you well. Second piece of context I give you as we approach this passage is the timeline. Jesus had been crucified for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the grave, which is the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. The apostles and disciples gathered together. There's about 120 here at this time. There's about 120 people. I do want to note something in the timeline. Notice what they did in the first century. They prayed 10 days. Peter preaches one sermon. 3,000 people get saved. Do you remember the revival days that we used to experience? Some of you are old enough to have gone to maybe a tent revival or community revival, or possibly even hosted one here in the church. What would we do? We'd preach 10 days maybe pray one, and nothing happened. <laughs> I'm just suggesting that the order, the timeline, the order salutis of that might be considered for your discussion in the future as we bring back the old-fashioned tent revivals if that comes to be true. But the apostles and disciples pray and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches this single sermon, and it ends here in verse 41. And those who received his word followed with baptism, and there were added that day about 3,000 people. That's serious, right? About, give or take, not as precise. But there were 3,000 people that genuinely were converted under a single sermon proclaimed by Peter. And the Lord added to this. And so what we know on the timeline is there's this huge crowd and this massive crowd. Now, here's what's going on. The diaspora has put about between 100,000 and 200,000 people in Jerusalem, in the, in the holy city. They've, they've come to the city. Peter comes and preaches, contextually, good move, bold move, preaches, and then you have this massive church is born. And man, they're going, there's 120 of us, there's 3,000 people, there's only 12. And as you know, as you read further in the book of Acts, what happens in Acts 6? Man, we can't handle all this, right? So we gotta get some help. So you have an early prototypical deacon ministry being established, right? We can't do all of this. And they're doing church every single day. They're gathering not once a week for an hour. They're gathering every single day. And 3,000 people were baptized. Think about the logistics of gathering and feeding. In the diasporas, they don't have homes. There's this 100,000 people who are just in the city uh, for an extended period of time. And they're sleeping in barns and people's back houses and on roofs. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy time. And you have the explosion of the gospel, which is a, a wonderful thing. And out of this single sermon, you have an inner city church in Jerusalem 
that's born. The first century church is born. The 12 apostles are serving as its temporary leadership by Acts 6. You're adding in a layer, seven deacons, making this kind of the, the care of the churches. So you've got 19 total leaders trying to cover 3,000 people. You could, you could say it's pretty busy, right? It's pretty intense. It wasn't just, you know, and I appreciate we're going to have a meal together this morning. Some of you are like, oh no, what do I do? What do I bring? You panicked. You almost went to Costco, but you said no. Because Uncle Dan says we don't do Costco cookies. We do homemade cookies. So you stayed up late and worked hard. Why? Because that's the right thing to do. All right, third piece of context. I want to drop that in just to get rid of those Costco cookies. As an executive member, I can speak to these things of Costco. Three, I want you to see the killer word here. There's one significant word I want you to circle in your Bible. It's in verse 42. And they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. That's what I want you to see. Are you devoted to the local church? They devoted themselves. It's the key word. It is a verb, and it means to, with earnest, give yourself to something. It's, it means you're resolved. There's fidelity kind of tucked into this Greek word. It's a present active imperative, meaning they were continually and always devoting themselves to the local church. They, they were relentlessly devoting themselves to the local church. When you double click on this word, it is packed with meaning. And that's why I entitled our time together, A Devoted Church, because of this single word. They were constantly diligent to give themselves to the local church. We say it in more modern vernacular, they were all in, right? It was a full send. It was a full send. They were all in. They were not half-heartedly committed to the local church. They weren't just, you know, kind of weekend warriors and, and every couple of weeks showing up here to make sure the elders don't give you a ring and give you a call. They weren't tepid. They weren't bland. They, it wasn't vanilla. They weren't on the perimeter. They were all in. And that's what I want you to feel in this text. I want you to sense that it's an all in. You cannot be on the perimeter. I want you all in. I want you loving this local church, right? Being a casual member is foreign to the New Testament. You see it early. They were devoted to Jesus, but they were also devoted themselves to that body, to, to those people, to, to, one to, to one another. I think... It's the kind of church I'd join. And I'm pretty confident it's the kind of church you would join. You kind of want to be a part of this group. Like, it was happening, right? You're going to see some cool things that are happening. We'll look back at them in Acts 1 and 2. It gets a little wild. But they were devoted to that local church. They were all in. They gave themselves to the local church. And listen, it's true of all of us. There's two things that God puts in all of us. One is belonging, right? And the second is mattering. Belonging, community, and mattering, cause. He wants you to belong, and he wants you to have a cause, a cause greater than yourself. 
right? It's, it's more important than yourself. The gospel is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than all of us together, right? But God puts in the heart of man to, to matter, to, to live this one life you're given and to live it to its fullest. And he's also put it within you to belong. You're not to go it alone. You need one another. You, can, you will hurt your personal progressive sanctification by trying to live on the perimeter. So we want you in the center, Especially during a time like this as we're searching for a new lead leader. I mean, it's, it's significant that we, we band together. We're a band of brothers, right? And sisters. And it's significant. And it's in this world, in this word devoted. You can sense the zeal, the commitment, right? The intensity of what it means to be devoted to the local church. I mentioned last week or, or two weeks ago when I was here the elders and their commitment to you and how we're meeting. Like this afternoon, we're gonna be in that room back there. They're gonna sweat us out and we're gonna be there like five hours this afternoon working on ourselves, right? Working on the church, praying for you, going through the prayer request, working on the constitution. We're doing all kinds of things. Why? Because, not because we're paid, but because we love you and we're devoted to you and we want you to have the same zeal and passion and, and love for the local church that we have, right? Because it's the hope of the world. So I guess before we look at the passage, let me ask you a question. Are you devoted? Are you all in? Young people, a lot of young boys here, are you all in? You're gonna give yourself to the local church? I wanna give you a spiritual shove. I want you to be all in. I've been all in for 38 years, never flinched and never given up. What does it look like then? There are four activities of the local church. The first one I want to call your attention to is this. You need to be devoted to the scriptures. We need to be devoted to the scriptures. Look at it. And they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. It's didache. It's a reference to the whole body of teaching. Its synonym would be doctrine which Paul mentions in Titus chapter 2, 1 Timothy 4, 16. It says, pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine, your didache, right? The whole body of truth, the whole counsel of God. They didn't have the whole counsel of God, yet we do have that privilege. Jude 1, 3 says the scripture, the canon's closed, right? And we have this whole body, 66 books, that we are just committed to, Right? Jesus said, John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. James, half-brother of Jesus, grew up in the house with him. Jesus never did anything wrong. That had to be a bummer being a brother to Jesus. I mean, that, I just kind of, that would stink because um, you're always in it, you know, James 1.18 says, we are, we are born again, or it says brought forth by the word of God. He then continues on and says, you're, you grow by the word of God. The word, when you're sitting under it, like this week, you're being washed, as Peter would say, you're being washed in the word. It's like a fresh cleansing. That's why Sunday morning matters when we take the Lord's Day and we come together. It's like we got clean, right? It's like, ah, oh. and the spirit's working. I can, let me tell you a little secret about preaching. So, so many times when I'm preaching, I know, I've got my notes here. I kind of know what I'm saying. 
But people come up to me afterward and said, when you made comment about this, and I'm thinking, I didn't make any comment about that. What's happening? The Spirit's working in your heart. Even now, you're thinking about all these ideas, like, should I become an exclusive member to Costco? You know, you're thinking about all this crazy stuff's happening in your mind right now. But then the Spirit of God's working. You know, I never correct you. I just smile and say, I'm glad that the Spirit spoke that into your heart because I know what I said. I didn't say that, but you heard it. Or there's things I say and you mishear it. That's true too. So it's out there. But you're born again by the word of God. You're sanctified by the word of God. It's, it's, it's ground zero for us as a church. We're to be scripture-soaked people. We're to be scripture-soaked elders. We're to be scripture-soaked Bible people, right? It's at the top of the list. We ransack our Bibles during the week. We revel in the word of God when we gather on Sundays, right? The, the word of God is, is inspired and rich and it, it'll direct your steps. It's sufficient, right? We, 2 Timothy 3.16 is sufficient for every good work. First Peter, uh, 2 Peter 1 says he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. It's contained in the scriptures and we're now custodians as a local church of the scriptures in this valley. And we gather to worship and our worship is tethered to the scriptures. That's why we don't put scripture on the screen. We want you to carry your own copy of scripture. You should be looking down saying, is that guy saying that right? Is he on, on target? And if I'm not, you just throw it out. It, you know, I, know, I love when your good Bible teaching is happening, all I see is the top of your head. Some of them are bald, some of them have hair, and all I see is glare or hair. And that's what you have here. Like, I'm just looking down. I want to see the tops of your head because you're going, that's what the Bible says. You know, and so it, in some ways, you know, one hand's pointed towards heaven and one's pointed at the scripture. I want you to be seeing the word of God as it brings to bear your life. And I am in a long line of reformers 500 years ago who said the chief act of worship, there's many things, giving's an act of worship, singing is an act of worship, but the chief act is the explication of God's word. When they take the word of God and you explain it, and like Ezra, I bring sense to it and color, and we focus, and we don't run all over the place. We just dive in and, and unpack this particular passage of scripture. We should be a Bible study church. That's what we should be. And notice verse 46. How often did they do it? Day by day. Now, contemporary context Contemporary context, listen, you have access to podcasts, radio, I mean, things that they didn't have access to. You can get access to the word of God, the internet. You can, you can rummage all the time. But I can tell you this, that it is extremely important that we love the scriptures and we sit under it and lots of it, okay? Probably Sunday morning, if truth be told, if, you, if the elders could have their way, it wouldn't just be Sunday morning. An hour, 45 minutes with me today, that's enough for you to, no, you need to be under the word of God. They did it all the time. So that's why we're, you're you know, always reading the Bible for yourself. You're, you're, you're speaking it into your children. You're sitting at the dinner table, right? You're, you're talking about it before you go to bed. You're, you're everything about this. Hosea 4, 6 kind of rings in my ear where it states, my people are destroyed for what? lack of knowledge. We probably need more of it. 
There's been times in my ministry where I've been accused. I, I was, in my younger years, I was kind of on the camp preaching circuit. So I do all these student ministry camps. I'm, I'm kind of out to pasture now because my jokes no longer are relevant, you know. And so they kind of they put you out. But I remember I was doing this one camp out of Oakland, California. It was a school camp. And uh, it was just an eclectic group of people. And the ground just felt to me as a teacher fallow. I just felt like it was really cold, really hard to teach. And I got through like two nights. The first, second night, they were like, hey, you're using too much Bible. <laughs> now, they actually was a compliment. You know, they didn't know. They thought they were going to be, it was a pejorative. They're going to beat me up a little bit and try to tame me a little bit. And that just made me double down, you know, like I'm going to go longer and harder than I've ever gone. And I was kind of angry preaching. It was probably not a good thing spirit-wise, but I was just going to plow through it, you know. The other thing they said, which is kind of funny, not a part of this, but they said, nobody's ringing the bell. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, when they get saved, they would run out in the woods about a quarter mile and they'd ring a bell. So they kept saying, nobody's ringing the bell. Well, I, I had a weak moment one afternoon and I just ran out in the woods and I rang the stew out of that bell and ran as fast as I could back to my speaker's cabin. And they're like, see, people getting saved, all's good, you know, and so I can continue on and preach my Bible. So I know it's a little crooked, but that's the way it works when they try to trap you as a pastor into doing things. So the bottom line is this. There's a lot of things that this church could have been labeled. Let's just, let's, let's just talk about a few of them. I mean, it was a happening place, was it not? I mean, if you, you've read Acts 1 and 2, I hope, if you've you know, discovered your scriptures. There's crazy stuff going on. Like, it's crazy train. I mean, there's like sounds coming through there, like a freight train. There's tongues of fire. There's crazy momentum. 3,000 people, the energy that's taking place. There's signs and wonders. I mean, people's you know, arms are getting lengthened. and I mean, it's, things are awesome, you know. Um, I mean, it, the filling and the indwelling of the Spirit. I mean, they could have been laid the experiential church. But when clarified, they devoted themselves not to the experiences, right? Because if you do, whatever you do to get them, you have to do to keep them. And you can't whip that up. What I'm talking to you about this Sunday is what we do every Sunday. It's called the ordinary means of grace. It's simply taking the word of God and bringing it to bear in our lives and asking you to interpret it and speak into your heart and apply it to your life. That's why we call it transformational expository preaching. We want it to transform your life. But it could have been it could have been a crazy church, right? I mean, this would have been wild. I'm just telling you, this was like the Jesus revolution. I mean, this is crazy train, right? But it, no. When Luke writes, he said, no, they're word-based. Scripture soaked, uh, clarified by the scriptures, word-driven. And I speak on behalf of your elders, that's their heart. Even looking at the Constitution, we're just saying, hey, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible what is it? That's our first response, right? What does God's word say? Because it's, it's the final authority for faith and practice. And that's why it's so significant. So no matter where you go in life, if the Lord transitions you out of this valley, it doesn't matter. You should be looking for a scripture-soaked church. You young people are gonna go all over the world. Wherever you go, wherever you move your family, the first question is not what is the housing market like, right, Kendon? It's not what the housing market's like it's, are the, is there a good, healthy, local church in that community? 
Because that is the most significant. And if it's a good, healthy local church, I'm going to tell you, they're going to put a primacy on the word of God. They were devoted all in when it came to the scriptures. So when you choose a church, you choose a church because they love the scriptures. And that's what we do. That's what we do here at Applegate. We expound, we explain, we clarify, and we exalt Christ in the word of God. And how we handle the word of God, right? Because Timothy says we're we got to rightly divide it. We're not just haphazardly. We're carefully. We're careful with how we handle it. We're careful with how we, we handle it and, and how we handle even God's people with the word of God. And so the foundation, ground zero of a good church, of a healthy church, how do they teach and treat the scriptures? How do they teach and treat because if they misuse it or twist it or misinterpret it, that should cause you concern as well, right? That's why we want you to have a copy of God's word. And so at the end of the day, you want the commentary, the reputation to be, if you go to Applegate, I guarantee you're going to get a solid sermon. It's going to line up with the word of God. You know what I'm saying? It's going to point you to Jesus, right? That's what you want. And in some weeks, it's hard to be good every week, right? Some weeks, you, you know, you lay an egg as a preacher. That's just not good. But I got to do at least once a month, I got to do a good one. So you go, oh, we keep coming back, right? I mean, you, you can't, it's hard. It's ordinary means of grace. But I don't even have to worry about that. And usually the times when I think I've laid an egg, or the, if I think I preach so well, they're going to want me to speak at the next big conference. They got it. That message was genius. Nobody says a word. Then I lay an egg, and every one of you say, man, that was so powerful. And I'm thinking, no, it was horrible. You know, it was horrible, but that's the spirit of God. It's, he's saying, I don't need you. I don't, you know, I, I don't come with eloquent words, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. It's the foolishness of preaching that saves souls. It's the foolishness of preaching that disciples and edifies people, right? That's what it is. And so they were devoted to the scriptures. We should be devoted to the scriptures. Second, activity of the local church. They were devoted to one another. They were devoted to one another. Look at this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Didache, and to fellowship. And to fellowship. Stop there. Fellowship, koinonia. It means to, to care for one another. To spend time with one another. I love it. He goes from the preaching of God's word horizontally to our interactions with one another. It ought to be awesome when you come in this place how much you love each other and genuinely care. We genuinely care about Mike. We genuinely care about any family that's hurting, right? When they hurt, we hurt, right? We weep with those who weep. We laugh with those who laugh, right? That's just part of the deal, But this is more than just having a meal. We're going to have a fellowship meeting, a potluck. I appreciate you calling it a potluck. Most people call it fellowship. It's not. It's a context, right? It's a context for community, but it's not community. That's why we do it. Not because we can't find a meal, right? We do it because we want to come together and we want to have true community when we start lowering the walls, right? 
We start confessing sin one to another. We start caring for one another. True, authentic community. I'm telling you, what God does, he puts in our hearts to have meaning and community. The meaning in life, a cause, something you give yourself to, and community. Both are critical for you. And if you've missed out on that, I'm sorry. But you can correct that even today. We treat one another like we're family. I've heard that multiple times around here and among the elders. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews later says what? Don't, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves one another. Why? Because you stir each other up to love and good deeds. Like you're seeing each other, you're like, ah. You know, you run into Bill and you're like, ah, I gotta confess my sin. You know what I'm saying? Like you just know, like I gotta say, I'm sorry, I, I messed up. You know, like you just do. You, you have to choose a church that does community well. Koinonia, fellowship, true fellowship. Intentionality here is in play. We're not just talking about the weather. It's okay to talk about the smoke. I did it this morning. It is frustrating, but that's not what changes people's lives. Community changes people's lives. When you have people over to your house, it's okay to, to talk about San Francisco or whoever you vote for, or the Ducks. It's okay. It's okay to do that. But that's not community. Biblical community is when you bring the scriptures to bear into the conversation and, and you're talking about the gospel and you're preaching the gospel to one another and you're singing the gospel and you're praying the gospel like a community group or when you gather together. It's not just small talk over a meal. It's life on life. In the spirit of Proverbs 27, 14, iron sharpens iron, so another man or another woman sharpens another man or woman. It's that kind of community we all crave. Surface community, no bueno. No bueno. We want to double click on community. We want to go below the surface. We want to get in each other's lives. We want to confront one another, love one another, care for one another, shepherd one another, speak into one another's life, right? All of that, that's what you really are craving for. That's what you want. And community, biblical community, always, always, always looks out for the best interests of others. Philippians 2. You esteem others better than yourselves. How do, how do the five elders or four elders get along? How do they make decisions? Philippians 2, 3 and 4. They esteem each other better than themselves. They don't have their own agenda. They're not coming with an agenda. They're coming with a, a love for you and a desire for a biblical community. So there's a strong, a strong sense of responsibility here. And they were devoted to one another's discipleship. And you say, how far do they go? Colossians 1.28. Until every man is made perfect. It's what Paul told him. Every man is made perfect. We're in it. We're all in it. We're having spiritual conversations. We're united in the gospel. And I'm telling you, that's a powerful testimony, is it not? John 13, 34 and 35. This shall all men know that you're my disciples when you have what? Love, let's just change out the word. We can, community. When we have genuine community, they will know all over Southern Oregon, if you want genuine community and you want sound preaching, you head into Applegate Valley. You go to Applegate Community Church because they know the priorities. They know why they're here. They know why they exist and they crave it and they want it. And there's nothing worse than just flat community and people come and go and I've noticed I'm talking about you behind your back but I've noticed you guys stay after and you talk you ask each other where have you been what have you been up to this week 
How you doing? I appreciate that. I love that about you. And please don't let that stop. Don't. It wasn't merely talk, was it? Did you look down below? So below 42 is kind of some commentary, some color to these activities. But I just want to point out some of the color here. They clearly, if you look at verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's not communism. That's community, right? And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to others, right? They, there was the diaspora. They didn't have places to stay. They had run out of capital. They had no more pesos. They had to quickly like figure this out. And they've got 3,000 people that they're caring for now. So they, people held their material wealth lightly. If I can give you the shirt off my back, then I give you the shirt off my back. They put their money where their mouth was for sure, Right? Their possessions they were sharing, look at that, and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. They saw it and counted it an extreme privilege to give themselves away in the spirit of Philippians 2, 1 to 4. That's what, if you want to know what community looks like, if you want to see the blueprint 50 days after Jesus leaves, that's what it starts to look like. That's where it should be, demonstrating hospitality, right? Opening their homes, opening their wallets, opening their hearts, opening their church, right? We're not a closed community. We're open. It's even in your name, community. It just dawned on me. It's in your name. We eat apples, we have gates, and we're a community, right? This is what we do. It's a community. They were together. They loved each other. They enjoyed hanging out with each other. It's a place where you raise your children. It's a place where they sit under the word. You live in community, right? There's so many cool things that are happening, but nothing replaced sweet, spiritual, deep conversations about the gospel. Don't underestimate the power of community. I've been to a lot of churches. I get to travel around the globe, and it's not always true. And they have great teaching, and it's like you come to an event, but there's not relationships. You need relationships. You are made for relationships. You're made for community, right? You, you are built. You are not made to ever go it alone. It is dangerous for you to isolate yourself. You need to be in community, even when you don't feel like being in community, right? We're there. Discipleship happens in community, not in isolation, This church had genuine fellowship, loved their Bible, loved the scriptures, and experienced the sweet fellowship. Number three, they were devoted to worship. They were devoted to worship. Look at 42. I'll put a C there. They they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Let's group those two together. As important as it is to relate to one another and to have this horizontal relationship and have this horizontal community, it's equally important to relate to God. Both of these two here, this clause is one, both of these two speak to the vertical dimension. They were serious. They were Christ-centered. 
what they experienced in community, what they experienced in the local church, what they experienced sitting on the word was, was, it, it was unearthly, right? It can't be found anywhere else in this valley. They devoted themselves to communion. This is a reference to the Lord's table. Now, there are only two institutions that is established for a local church. Baptism, which is a one-time event, and communion, which is ongoing. Have you ever thought why is it ongoing? Why is it that we're taking the bread and drinking the wine and reminding ourselves, why? Because you will, in your flesh, and as you go through, as you course through life, you will have the tendency to forget about the gospel. You do. So that's why as often as we do it, I think we do it once a month. Next week, are we gonna do it next week, Bob? Next week. So next week, we get to participate in this activity. And it's a what? It's a remembrance. Why? Because you forget about the power of the gospel. You forget it's a bloody cross and that the son of God was crushed for our sins and bled and died for my sin-sick, Satan-serving soul. You forget it. We forget it. They forgot it. So there's only one institution that brings you back to dead center. One institution that brings you back to, to worship, right? And it produces, you see down there, it produced in them this glad and generous heart. Because when you sit under the cross, beneath the cross that we sang earlier, you were reminded like, wow, if it weren't for the cross, I would be a, a, a mess. I would be a wreck, right? And they devoted themselves to communion and to the Lord's table. They were breaking bread. They were doing it all the time to remind themselves of the gospel, in this corporate spiritual discipline, they did this together to remind themselves of Jesus and it would cause repentance in their hearts. And they would never forget Jesus. That was the goal of it. They couldn't get enough of it. They were doing it all the time. They were doing it in homes. They were doing it in the local church. They couldn't get enough. So if you're looking for sweet fellowship, good preaching, you're also looking for serious vertical relationship right? In the breaking of bread. And this produces the awe, which you see in the passage. It produces gladness of heart. It recalibrates everything. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're like, ah, yeah, I needed to hear that, right? I need that. It produces this gratitude. And then he says, there's a second dimension. Do you see it? And prayers. And prayers. Communion with God both in the form of the Lord's table and communion with God in prayer. Our communion with God matters. So when you're under the scriptures, right, it's God speaking to you. Prayer is you speaking to God. And I think it's important to reference that when Jesus described the local church, he said, my house should be called a what? House of prayer. A house of prayer. Our prayer is our reflection of our dependence upon God. It's, it brings awe. It brings our language to, to say thank you and, and express gratitude and, and who he is and his sovereign care. It brings about trust in our lives. And again, when they had revival, 10 days of prayer, one sermon, 3,000. When we do revival, we preach our lights out for 10 days, itsy bitsy prayer, nobody gets saved. We just need to think about that. We need to bathe everything we do in prayer. Paul said, be anxious for nothing, 
but everything, right, through prayer. You bring everything to him in prayer. It's a sign of dependence. It's a sign of a healthy church that we pray. And we, we, when we read the scriptures, right, like Ross did this morning, we read them carefully, we pray. We don't just pray like packaged prayers. You want to get a hold of God, right? You want to get a hold of God when you pray. You got to be serious about it. And when public prayer is light, it's because private prayer is probably light, right? And all of us. And I'm telling you, prayer is the hardest thing you do. It's the hardest thing I do. I'd rather preach than pray. I'd rather read my Bible than pray. It is the hardest thing I do. But it might be the most important thing to do. As a matter of fact, to change your prayer habits would be to change your life. That's the reality. But it's hard. I'm, I'm, I'm just putting it before you. And, and you see that they were serious and they were devoted to worship. In the breaking of bread and prayer, they're going to God all the time saying, God, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from heaven. Lord, send revival, like Second Chronicles says, to us. Are we devoted to the breaking of bread? Are we devoted to prayers? Fourth and final. They were devoted to the gospel. They were devoted to the gospel. Everything beyond 42 is commentary, and I'm going to group it all in. It's like color. It's clarifying. But if you were to take away a singular principle, it would be they were devoted to the gospel, and the effect it produced was awe. When was the last time you came to church and you were in awe? You should be. Awe in the singing. Awe in how much you gave to the Lord. Awe, awe in your participation. Awe in home, home-baked cookies. Awe in, like, everything ought to produce this sense of awe, right? So everything in the main sentence, the results, the effects, right? It describes this dynamic church. So everything following is commentary on verse 42. Let's look at it. And awe, look at that, verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling everything and belonging and distributing everything to everyone who had need and day by day attending the temple together, breaking their breads in their home, eating meals, they were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with the people and the Lord added to the number day by day. They were devoted to the gospel, the impact and the effects of the gospel. Second Corinthians 5, 17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. All of this could be described as they were awestruck, right? They had awe. It's the word phobia. They actually had a fear, like, wow, God is awesome. He's huge. High view of scripture, high view of God is in play here for this church. There was demonstration of the Holy Spirit. There's signs and wonders. You say, well, hold on. We don't see those. Remember, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. There's no need for that. They needed to confirm the apostles. Who were the right teachers against who were the false teachers? And the way you did that is the ones that could do signs and wonders, you would say, ah, that's a true teacher. It was true of Jesus, too. Look at verse 22 of chapter 
2, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know with Jesus. It was confirmation. It was attestation to what was going on. It was a demonstration of the Spirit. They left church going, we have sat under the Spirit of God's influence through the explication and preaching of God's Word, through the singing of God's Word, through the breaking of bread, through the sweet fellowship, right? The fact that they prayed and they know how to get a hold of God. There was self-forgetting fellowship, as you see here in these verses, where they're giving their stuff away. They're like, hey, anybody has needs, stop by my barn. Take whatever you can. Take it to make your life easier. There's massive generosity going on here. Listen, when God gets a hold of your heart, he gets your wallet too. <laughs> you forgot that, didn't you? They both come, right? Right? They come. Massive generosity. The gospel makes you generous. He doesn't make you stingy. He just doesn't. Massive. And this craving for worship, the daily, the ongoing, incessant flow and character and rhythm, as you feel this text, you can feel energy building in this text. They're full of joy and authenticity. They were the real deal. And then he says at the end, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. Man, it became this bold witness. Everybody in the diaspora was talking about what was going on in the city, in this little inner city church 50 days after the resurrection. And they'd become, like we talked about last week, salt and light. The power of the gospel was on display. They became this missional church and reaching people. They cared about people's needs. They were seeing people's lives transformed. People were grateful and gratitude was present. And, and, and it's just an unforgettable nature. Why? Because they loved the gospel. They were devoted to the gospel. The gospel has the power to change, right? It is the only thing that changes people's lives. Romans 1. It's the power of God. We're not ashamed of the gospel. We're promoting the gospel and how we live, what we say, how we preach. That's the mark of a healthy church. It's the activity of a healthy church. We are about the gospel. We don't want to be known for what we're against. We want to know, be known for what we're for. We're for the gospel in this community. We're for transformed lives. We're for crazy neighbors to get saved. We're for all of that. That's what we're about. And when you are word-soaked, serious about worship, serious about breaking bread, serious about prayer, then you start seeing people getting saved because that's what happens. People see you and they go, I want what he has. I want what she has. I mean, she is on fire. She's so grateful for the gospel, the power of the gospel, the same. It is, it is remarkable. It's compelling. It's attractive. It's not because we put on something, a show up here and to get attractive. It's because you're attractive by how you live and how, what you're devoted to. And your unique devotion to the local church is stunning to people. They cannot understand it. And frankly, the world is more devoted to a football team than they are to the local church. They'll go there and scream and yell and hoot and throw things. And they come to church and they're like, <clears throat> like come on. We got to do it better, right? We can do this better. We really can. It becomes a gospel to the people. And then, what do you see? The end of verse 47. Ton of people. 
ton of people being added to the church. People are being saved. People are being transformed. So you're seeing people being saved, being baptized, becoming disciples, called to ministry. That's when you start seeing the flywheel of a healthy local church. You're seeing regular people getting saved, getting baptized, getting discipled. And then every once in a while, God sets down on a, on a man and says, I'm going to pull that one aside, and he's going to go either overseas or stay domestic. And right, You want to see those indicators. They're just little windows into health. These are the activities of the local church. So I ask you this morning, are you devoted to the local church? If you are, no matter where you're at in the world, that means you're devoted to the scriptures. You're devoted to one another. You're devoted to serious worship. And you're devoted to championing and promoting and living the gospel. This is what the first church looked like. I think principally we can say it's true of us today, right? I think we can say there, it's not what it was intended to write, but I think it's fair as we look at the blueprint and we say, hey, that's, that's the kind of church I think I would join. I think that's the kind of church you would join. That's the kind of church we should all be a part of. That's what we should promote and be. So two questions and I close. First, are you right with God? I always want to be careful to make sure we extend an invitation to you to embrace Jesus Christ. It's possible you've come in, you've sat and you've listened and thought, oh my, I have never encountered Jesus like that. I've never seen it in the scripture. I just want to remind you that, that God, who is holy and just, And because man is sinful and unable, sent Christ to die for our sins, holy and able. He is holy and able to save you. And you have to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, we would want you to do that. As a young person, as an older person, we want you to know Jesus Christ. And you can know that you know. And you can have insurance that you'll be in heaven with Christ. You've got to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So I asked, asked the simple question, because we always have guests here. Are you right with God? Two, the real question, am I devoted to church? Am I devoted to this church? Again, I would encourage you, join the local church. There are no perfect churches. If you strive to find one, if you ever joined it, as Mr. Spurgeon says, you'd make it imperfect. But among the imperfect, there are healthy, and there are tons, there's a bazillion of them, and you should commit yourself and be devoted like this. This is what it looks like to be a devoted church. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray this morning for maybe the one or two who are here who, if they're honest, would have to say, I don't know the Lord Jesus. We'd love to introduce you to him. You can come see me or any of the elders this morning. Father, I pray most importantly this morning that we would be devoted. There are so many devoted people here that are exemplars and examples And I pray that if if someone's on the fringe or just outside of the reach, I pray they'd come all in. They'd get on the field. They'd get out of the stands and onto the arena 
and play ball with us. Lord, help us all to examine our commitment to the local church, our devotion, first to the Lord Jesus and then second to the local church. Thank you for this church. Thank you for its impact in the community. May we go out this week and proclaim what is a healthy church to this community. Father, thank you for teaching us. Thank you for this text. Thank you for Luke writing it under your inspiration and clarifying for us what are the activities of a healthy biblical church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.